Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Kent GP, Dr. Chris Newman, one of the co-founders of Doctors for Extinction Rebellion, which is currently changing its name to Health for Extinction Rebellion. This is a group of healthcare professionals that campaigns on climate change. In the upcoming conversation, we're talking about Chris's involvement in direct action, including his experience of being arrested and charged under public order laws last year. We also talk about why education on climate change for all NHS staff is so important and his own push to educate people in his community about the importance of taking steps to address climate change, however small. Chris mentions a number of resources during this conversation and we've put a link to them as well as to the Adopters for Extinction Rebellion's website in the description for this episode. I'm really delighted to be joined now by Dr. Chris Newman, who's a GP in Kent and one of the co-founders of Doctors for Extinction Rebellion. So thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you, Emma. Pleasure to be here. So how did you first become interested in environmental issues and climate change? And when did you realise it was something you wanted to really do something very directly about? It started for me probably around 2017, 2018. There was a lot of stuff in the press about plastic pollution and David Attenborough's documentaries had been doing the rounds. And we all saw on our TV screens the extent to which plastic is everywhere, you know, at the bottom of the Mariana Trench in Turtle's nostrils, you know, it was pretty horrific stuff. And I started to become aware more, you know, because we use plastic every day. People call it like um, a gateway to environmentalism as a whole because you kind of can see it in your hand. So I started trying to use less of it. I, I like a challenge. So I thought, right, I'm going to not buy any for a month. And that was very difficult. I managed it. I had to ration a few things at the end. I kind of realized through going through that process, like this is a really, really difficult thing and something we should be talking about more. And then I remember speaking to a friend of mine about this issue. And he, he said to me, I know plastic's getting a lot of media right now, but it's climate change that we should be really worried about. And I remember being surprised by that. And we think about that now. I'm like, what? How can I wouldn't be surprised by that? It's all over the place. But it wasn't. It really wasn't. Not long afterwards, Greta started doing her protests. Her sits outside the Reichstag and Extinction Rebellion started their protests. Seeing people sitting in a street and willing to be arrested, I'm like, hang on a minute. That's a lot more than just holding a banner, right? You kind of read it in the papers, don't you? Like, oh, you know, there's international panels on this stuff and you think governments know about it of the world, so they must be working to fix it. And then the more I read about it, the more I thought, well, hang on, what's happening and what's the, the action and what's underlying it? They don't seem to be matched uh, in speed and scale of response. So I kind of gradually came around to the idea that some types of protests are probably justified, although it was still like it was a difficult thought because I've never been involved in a protest in my life before. You're one of the doctors that started Doctors for Extinction Rebellion. How did that come about and why did you think it's important to get involved in this way? So what happened to me kind of came to a head in April 2019 when I saw an interview And it was between a Sky News anchor called Adam Bolton and an Extinction Rebellion protester and spokesperson who was a 21-year-old man. It was really depressing to watch. I mean, it was kind of like bullying, really. I remember the label that this anchor attributed to the spokesperson, to his face, was something like, you're an incompetent, middle-class, disruptive person or something like that. And it was so sneery and just... I started thinking, well, hang on, this is a really significant issue. Why are you not talking about the issue? Why are you only talking about the protest? Surely there has to be some balance here. And I wanted to jump in to say, hang on a minute, you know, health professionals are worried about this kind of stuff too. 
but I didn't see any stuff about health professionals in the movement. It was only what you might think of as kind of a typical looking protester. And I started to worry about what happens if this movement dies, because it was giving me some hope. I thought, well, at least this is getting in the press. And I kind of realized after watching the interview, this really needs some kind of professional group or health professional group to get involved and try and legitimize this in the eyes of the press and the public. I basically thought, shit, I've got to do something. And I spent the next 12 hours making a website and making a YouTube video and sending it to everyone that I knew on Facebook and saying, you know, is anyone interested in doing this? And decided in the moment to call it Doctors for Extinction Rebellion, just because like, I mean, I'm politically, I'd say pretty center left. I was also a bit worried about like, where's this going to go? You know, I'm not a communist. I, I believe in the rule of law, all this type of stuff. So it was like Doctors for Extinction Rebellion to give this a little bit of distance. Like we're supporting you, but we're not you. And so I just kind of sent this stuff out. And within six days of making that video, there were about 20 health professionals in a flat in Dalston in East London talking about what we could do as a group together with this kind of brand. And it grew from there. So how many people are part of Doctors for Extinction Rebellion now? And what sort of things are you involved with at the minute to raise awareness of the climate crisis? 1,200 in our mailing list. And so we have to be pretty hot on security because we know that the police try and infiltrate groups. So you're only allowed in if you have an NHS email or a personal recommendation from a health professional or an institutional email. So we're sure that these are health professionals. Obviously, not everyone is active all the time. People have family commitments, work commitments, caring responsibilities, all these kinds of things. There's a substantial number, and it's not just doctors. There's also nurses, OTs, physios, paramedics, midwives, all sorts. And we've actually very recently decided to rebrand to Health for XR because of that. But we haven't changed our website or social media handles yet. And what do we do? Well, I think most people that I know, they're doing whatever they can. I live in a little town in Margate on the East Coast. don't have a car. I don't fly anymore. I don't, I don't eat meat. I don't buy much stuff. People might think of this as being extreme, but you know, I like this life. But a lot of people are doing those kind of things in their personal lives, but also trying to influence their colleagues, like talking about it, whatever we can, because there's a lot. We're playing catch-up, really, culturally, because most people, well, I'd say everyone, has been educated on this primarily by the media, you know, which newspaper do you do you read? And what, what you think probably depends on that. And so the reason why there's a, you know, variety of beliefs about this issue is because people read different stuff and there's no central narrative. And I really think health can be that central narrative, but we've got a lot of work to do. One of your mission statements, as it were, is you say that the severity of the climate crisis is so great that it justifies you breaking the law. Can you explain a bit more about why you believe that? So I'm going to talk from a personal perspective I completely have a lot of respect for the rule of law. You know, it's people have spent centuries fine-tuning how the law balances with each other and sort of your rights and responsibilities are balanced. It's a very effective structure, but it's not a moral code. So there are some times when your morality and the law will come into conflict. And in those situations, usually what happens is someone is arrested and sentenced and people are sympathetic towards the person who's sentenced, but they've still broken the law and so that therefore they should be punished for it. I kind of see protest and the breaking of the law in a similar way. Like the intent of it isn't to say this is a morally higher thing, so we should be exempt from punishment. It's to put society in a dilemma. It's like because of the 
insufficient action on the the right speed and scale that governments, corporations and society in general is taking on this, protesters feel that they have to do something that's really quite extreme to get the attention. But that extreme thing is illegal. Then the question is, you know, if people do it in a peaceful manner as much as possible, and then they get punished or even put in jail or fined heavily, what does society think of that? Some will agree, some will disagree. But it's kind of it's creating a dilemma to create conversation, and it's through conversation that change happens. Looking at it purely from a is it effective standpoint, there has been plenty of research. Some of it was published in the Lancet recently about the efficacy of disruptive protest, and the research seems to suggest that it has a small but significant effect on both people's opinions of acting on climate change and on climate policy. And we saw that after Extinction Rebellion did their protest in 2019. Like, the government changed from wanting to reduce to like 80% of emissions by 2050 to net zero. A lot of councils changed to net zero 2030. There's a group called the Social Change Lab who've estimated the number of megatons of CO2 that will reduce, and it's really significant. It is effective, protest, but I, I get that for some people it, it feels really wrong. For the people who are kind of sitting there thinking, yeah, I like the message, but not the means. I get it, but there's a long history. You know, the Chartists back in the 1800s, the suffragettes, the civil rights movement. Like Martin Luther King was despised in his lifetime. Two years before he died, he had like a disapproval rating of about two thirds of the US. And yet we revere him in history. We like people who have disrupted things in the past and have won us freedoms and rights. And, but we don't like people who are doing it right now. You yourself and another group of healthcare professionals, you were arrested in April this year for taking part in an Extinction Rebellion blockade of Lambeth Bridge in central London. And you were actually charged and you appeared in court on charges of breaching Section 14 of the Public Order Act. What exactly happened there and what was that whole experience like? So we'd actually done a protest three days before on World Health Day and we'd spent months planning it. It was outside the Treasury and it was all to do with asking the government to reduce fossil fuel subsidies or to stop them. And the government spends £10 billion a year financially supporting fossil fuel. But it's not just us who have been trying to get government's attention from the health perspective. Pretty much all of the significant medical institutions in the country have written to government twice about this very same issue. In September 2021, before COP26, that was the big climate talks in Glasgow, and in February, so that's the BMA, the Royal College of Physicians, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, paediatricians, the Yobs and Gyne, they all wrote to government saying, we are asking you, please, for health grounds, stop licensing new oil and gas projects and reduce subsidies and push for a just transition for those workers who will need to retrain. And so this wasn't us going off on a limb. This is all of the main institutions that represent us. This was off the back of that. And so we did this protest on, on World Health Day, thinking, you know, this is a significant day for health professionals. And we blocked a really minor road. And then it got dark and cold, and it was getting no attention or next to no attention in the press. So we just got up and left. And then we found out later that day that on the same day, the government had released its energy strategy, in which it had said, we are going to bring forward new licensing in the North Sea because of what was happening in Russia and Ukraine. And they were going to review fracking 
So we were all really frustrated. And then on April the 10th, there was a march and the Extinction Rebellion group blocked Lambeth Bridge. And we were around and like coalesced around the bridge, which is just a bit downstream from Westminster. So pretty symbolic politically. So not much was happening. And then there was you know a group discussion, what XR called a People's Assembly. And we decided as a health block, there were about 20 or 30 of us there including the former editor-in-chief, the British Medical Journal, Fiona Godley. She was there too. We decided to ask everyone else to leave, that we would sit there on our own with the intention of making it a health protest, not an XR protest. So everyone else left. We sat there with our banner, which said, for health's sake, stop financing new oil and fossil fuel projects. I think. Almost, almost as soon as everyone else had left, the police, who were already there, they issued what's called a Section 14 it means they can change the location and timing of your protest. So they're like, you can keep protesting, but it's not here and not now. They said, you have to get off the bridge by five o'clock. And it was about quarter to five or something when we heard that. And we'd only been sitting down for like 15 minutes in that location on our own. I think 13 people decided that they didn't want to be arrested and kind of took themselves away. The seven of us who were arrested thought that we were willing to do this at the time. What was meant to happen is that the police were meant to discuss with us and say, look, our duty is to allow you to protest in as minimally disruptive way as possible. So can we help you or even make suggestions for you on how you can make this less disruptive? I personally would have very much wanted, like, can we let the buses across? Like, we didn't want to disrupt buses. Two ambulances passed. Like, as soon as there's an ambulance with Extinction Rebellion, at like it's like the Red Sea parts, because so, no one wants to stop any ambulances. There's a bit of a manufactured narrative that that's what protesters do. And, yeah, we were arrested. What happened after that? Were you charged immediately? Did you find out you were going to go to court straight away? The police won't arrest you straight away. They, you know, they tried to they give you opportunities to leave. So it's not like they just come in and rugby tackle you. My officer was very nice and, and kind, just doing their job, you know, like, like we all are. So they take you to the police station. Just to say, like, I do appreciate we probably get treated a little bit with kid gloves because we're health professionals. We were sitting in the cell for I don't know how many, how many hours until there's a decision made from kind of higher up on what to do sometimes release you under investigation and then they write to you later after a few months and saying you're now going to be charged you have to attend this court on this day and then in the court hearing you were obviously acquitted and it sounds like the judge was actually quite supportive of the actions that you'd taken so what actually happened there we'd actually contacted a lawyer you have a choice do you you can plead guilty and you get a lesser sentence you get a criminal record, but a lesser sentence. Or you can plead innocent and try to you know, prove. And the lawyers felt that there was such a short amount of time between us sitting there and getting the Section 14 and then being arrested that perhaps there were some points of due diligence hadn't been done. That was actually what we were let off on. It came down in the end to uh, there were seven defendants and we all gave testimony. Really moving, actually. Like three of my colleagues had had lived or worked in very poor countries. And I remember like one of my colleagues was saying like, he's really witnessed what it's like when the rains don't come. And it, it eventually came down to the police officer was saying that, that his team engaged with us all to discuss potential ways of having a different type of protest, for example, opening up a lane for buses. And they didn't. And I understand, you know, the police officer has been to like hundreds of protests. He'd been on a 12 hour day. A lot of them wanted to probably get home. Um, and so I don't. they didn't engage with us perhaps as well as they should have done. And the judge was very empathetic to us, doing the right thing, as, is, as was his job. But 
gave us all time, gave us all a lot of empathy and said he was very moved by what we said. We were all in tears like when, when he's... Because I didn't think we were going to get off, I'll be honest with you. I thought we were going to be found guilty. And how does all that work, you know, as a health professional? You know, obviously you're... And many of your colleagues, were, were most of them were, were doctors as well. So you're all registered with the, the GMC. You have to tell them if there's something like this happens, don't you? And also your employer, it's kind of your duty as a doctor. So... How does all that work? And were you really worried about how this could affect your career if you were found guilty? If this had been three years ago, I would have been worried. But there's been hundreds of health professionals who've been arrested, been through the court process, have had to let their employer know, let the GMC know. And to be, I think the GMC, not sick of it, but like, I think they've had so many emails. There's a lot of pressure on the GMC, especially around the duties of a doctor, which is being updated next year. There's been a lot of, I know there's been a lot of pressure from inst- from other health institutions saying, look, you need to take this into account. This is a situation that's never happened before where this duty is so torn and conflicted. I believe health professionals do have a responsibility to consider more the effects of practice on the greater planetary stability. Um and also our responsibilities as public health spokespeople, because this is going to affect public health, like clearly. So the GMC are aware of this and they basically say, we can't give a carte blanche to anyone. There is a limit to how you protest. Someone might do something very disrespectful or harmful to someone right? uh, or significantly harmful. And the GMC would take action in that instance, but they haven't sanctioned anyone so far. And I have a few colleagues who've been arrested a lot more than me. It sounds like you think that, you know, all doctors should have a responsibility to be sort of engaged with environmental issues and sustainability. What do you think doctors should be doing? It's a difficult question to answer because everyone's got their own context. I remember when I was a trainee doing long hours, going back to home on the train, like exhausted and, you know, had other stuff to deal with. So in this point of my career, I have a bit more time to engage with the issue. So having said that, I believe that, you know, there's enough out there from all of the the, the significant medical institutions for people to look into it more. Acknowledging pretty much everything we've learned has come from a biased source. Go to the primary data, like look at the the most respectable source would be the UN, the five yearly UN climate reports done by the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the IPCC. So look at the executive summary, see what they say, or look at the Lancet countdown. So the Lancet produced a report. It's called the Lancet Countdown on Climate Change. That's probably a bit better, actually, for health professionals because it goes into a bit more the specific health issues around it. And I think if people read enough, then what they need to do becomes more clear. I think the, the primary thing is is information because you can't argue with someone about what we should do about something. It's like if the diagnosis is wrong, <laughs> you can't discuss treatment. There's no point. You might you discuss the diagnosis first and then discuss treatment. And one of the things that you're quite keen on is is you would quite like to see education on climate change and the impact it can have on health, you know, to be mandatory for healthcare professionals. How would you like to see that work? I think we all have a relationship with mandatory training. A lot of it is mandatory because of legal statutes and because of fear amongst places of work about litigation. So I understand why fire training is every year and why manual handling is every year. Not that I, I don't necessarily like it or think that's an ideal situation, but I understand why they do it. But how many fires were there in hospitals 
you know, in 2022 or 2021, how many people have been harmed? And then compare that to how many people will be harmed and are being harmed by climate change. People have called it the greatest health threat this century. This is going to affect the, our entire society. It's going to affect how wealthy the country is, its ability to fund a health service. And yet, mandatory training is a blunt tool. And wouldn't it be so much nicer if we could very gradually educate people over the next few decades? This is urgent. So, yeah, I'm all for education. Um, and if you, tell, if you say to people that it should be mandatory, some people will be like, oh, I don't like mandatory training. There, people will often be for student education on climate change, you know, medical students. But then why do we want them to be educated and not us? And also, like, look at the power differential. What can students do? They're not in positions of power. They can't change supply chains. They can't change very much. So um, if we're going to educate students, then surely educating the people with power at the moment is equally, if not more important. In Argentina, they passed a law where every public servant has to be educated on climate change, including the government. It's called Yolanda's Law after a protest in Argentina. Really significant. So governments are being made to do this stuff. So I don't see why health professionals should be and and also it's this is for the it's for the greater good right and have you come across any training programs or resources that you think are, you know are particularly good educating people about climate change there's an organization i came across a few months ago called climate fresk f-r-e-s-k uh, and this came out of france it was called la fresque du climat fresque means fresco in french anyway it's a very interactive workshop two and a half hours long you use 42 cards and you have to arrange them from cause to effect on one side to the other and it's all based off the highest level un climate report data um and you kind of run this game and then there's a creative section and the bit at the end where you kind of discuss your emotional how you felt emotionally about it started running it in my local area had some people around to my house people are really engaged by it i mean i've probably got a cohort of people who already cared but I think it's the best model that I've seen and it's growing very quickly. And, you know, this has been taken on by BNP Paribas and L'Oreal and even En Marche, the French ruling political party. It's got significant traction. People don't want to sit through a two hour lecture or even a half an hour lecture. This is lightly facilitated. People have a conversation about where things go and I'm trying to get it more into health. So I've been running it for health professionals as well. People have found it very engaging. So... If you're interested in doing something in your local community, I, I would suggest Google it, find a course, they're online or they're offline. And once you've done it, you can become a facilitator in three hours. One of the other things you're doing to help raise awareness is, is sitting outside your local MP's office every Sunday. Can you explain about that? that? Who is your local MP and, and why are you doing that? So there's a notorious MP who has his office two miles away from where I live. It's Craig McKinley. He's quite an outlier in the Conservative Party. So, you know, there's a lot of green Tories. There are a lot of protesters who are anti-Tory, like personally, I'm, I'm not. Like I, I see right and left are an essential component of moving in the right direction. But Craig McKinley is very much an outlier. He's part of a, a very small group of Tory MPs called the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. They seem obsessed with talking about the price of action without ever discussing the reason for action. It's really illogical to do that. I don't think that Craig McKinley understands climate change to a significant degree, because if he did, he'd be 
talking about it in a completely different manner. And I think that's really harmful. I think people who only talk about the cost of action and never the purpose of action are really harmful to public debate. I wanted to get some stuff into the local press about him and almost to, I, I don't like doing like the kind of I'm a health professional, listen to me type thing. Like in this instance, I'm kind of playing a little bit on it. It's like a local GP thinks that the MP is wrong. Okay, well, two positions of authority. It's up for the public to decide who's right. So part of it was for symbolism. Thought so if I go there for a few weeks in a row, I bet at some point the local press will cover it. And after three weeks, they covered it. So that was the first thing was to get into the press. It's just a little bit of extra pressure on Craig McKinley's viewpoint. You know, he was asked for his opinion by one of the papers. And he says, I believe in protest. And if I'm ever in my office on a Sunday, which I imagine is never, but then he can come in for a cup of tea, which is, you know, great. But at least at least he's been made to engage with the fact that a local GP disagrees with his stance. And that will have an effect on him. Maybe a tiny, tiny, tiny amount, but it will have an effect. And you're also hoping, you know, that sitting outside Craig McKinney's office could become a focus place for educating people in your local community about climate change, aren't you? I thought, well, if you could get enough people outside in in a symbolic location or a busy location in a local area every Sunday and call it Sundays for Science. So like focus on scientists, health professionals. You know, if you had four, five, six, ten, twenty people every Sunday for a month or two, would that become a national story? And I hope that would happen. I've been there, was it seven weeks now? Like no one else has, people have said it's a good idea, but no one else has joined in yet. And, I, and I'm rethinking my initial messages that I had. The first one was society needs climate activists. What do you think? And there were lots of thumbs up and honking on the car horn. There's been engagement, but no one else has repeated it. So I, I wonder if the message is a little bit like too conflicty. And I'm thinking something a bit more like, you know, when we had COVID and there was all these public health messages around, like telling you what to do, like action focus, put a mask on, keep distance, keep space. I'm, I'm wondering now if something more like that would be better. And I've come across a campaign called Take the Jump, which I really like. It came out of the C40, which is the 40 biggest cities in the world. And it's a, it's a group of like all the, I think it's all the mayors. Um, and, and as a team, and they've done a lot of work on what individuals can do. And I think the research suggested that if all individuals did six actions, that would drop emissions by 27%, which is obviously it's not enough, but it's significant. And I think individual action helps almost creates your character in a way. Like, because like, I think this is how it worked for me. Like, I started doing a month on like not using plastic, and it made me more it made me think of myself as the kind of person who would do that. And so I think individual action, although it's not enough, I think it creates a relationship with yourself to say, I'm the kind of person who stands up for this stuff. And and that will lead to changes in voting habits, changes in, in maybe more protesters, that type of thing. Anyway, they create, they've created these six actions and, and they framed it in a really positive light, which I love because some of the messaging around climate, like I have to admit, I turn off when I see it because it's it's quite depressing. I don't always want to be in that space, you know. I'd like to be able to use something like that because I think it would might engage people more. We talked about you being arrested and everything that's happened, but I'm assuming, you know, Doctors for Extinction Rebellion or Health for Extinction Rebellion, not everybody has to do that. So, I mean, what does do people, if they want to join, what do they need to do and what will they get out of being members of your group? 
well, the, to the joining part, you can just literally go on our website, which is still called drsprexar.com. At some point, it will probably change. So you can, do, I'd say just go on there. And there's um, an email account, which is admin at drsprexar.com. So just message us. We do require proof that you are a health professional. If you're retired, we've had that occasion happen a few times. Sometimes we ask for someone else to ratify who you are because we really want to be careful about this just for everyone's safety. And, you know, we encourage people to be creative and learn from like the hive mind in a way. So, you know, we have various groups and subgroups. Like there was one subgroup of people who were health professionals and also artists, and they got a little they did a, t- a little gallery in association with, I think, one of the lo- one of the hospitals in London. It wasn't a big thing, but it's kind of like things that they're passionate about. We're creating regional subgroups so people can kind of meet up with people and maybe do some more stuff locally in their hospital. And we, we do have wellbeing chats, um, like a climate cafe type thing. Thanks, Chris. We'll put a link to your website in the description. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Thanks so much for giving me this opportunity. Thanks, Emma. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Chris for taking the time to talk to me. I'm back next week for our fortnightly news review, so do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget our website is at gponline.com.